Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. This is Deb from Media Night Radio. As everyone knows, we are welcoming to the airwaves actress, writer, producer, dynamic, Sherry Shattuck. To quote one producer's introduction, Sherry Shattuck has an IMDb, which is the Internet Movie Database, list as long as your arm, with more than 200 television shows, films, miniseries, movies of the week, and commercials on her acting resume, and that also does, in, that does not include theater. A few of her acting credits are the television shows Dallas, Sisters, Life Goes On, The Young and the Restless, and Babylon 5. Her film credits include On Deadly Ground with Michael Caine, Spy Hard with Leslie Nielsen, and A Man of Passion with Anthony Quinn. In addition, she has performed most of Shakespeare's major female roles on stage as well as hosts of other characters, including the lead role in a hit production of Cabaret. Wow. Sherry has also written and directed for the stage. See what I mean, guys? She's dynamic. (laughs) Daily Variety's rave review of her play, In Progress, said Shattuck's delightfully romantic comedy not only displays her talent as a stage performer, but also as a writer. So, on top of that, she's a writer, guys. For many years of acting and directing all contributed to her sense of drama, comedy, and story as a novelist. So now she writes novels. Oh, my goodness. Her first book, Loaded, was selected by Publishers Weekly as one of the best of 2003. She has since published five novels. And Invisible Ellen will be released June 3rd. Her first hardcover and audiobook, which she will perform herself. She has also co-produced the film Redemption with her husband, executive produced Scream at the Devil, another film in which she also stars as a woman tortured by schizophrenia. And that is due out for release this year. Enough of this. We need to welcome to the airwaves this amazing, amazing woman, Sherry Shattuck. Hi, Sherry. You're making me blush. (laughs) Hi. Hi, Deb. Great to talk to you finally. Yes, absolutely. It's been, uh, we've had some hit and misses, haven't we? Yeah, we kind of are, yeah. But, you know, like we said, we're going to have coffee after this, and so then we can get it all in if we don't get it in during this little interview here. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, I'm going to take you back, Sherry, where you were born in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh What was your upbringing like in Georgia, and did it shape what you did for the rest of your life? Absolutely. My mother is an artist, a wonderful artist, and so I was raised around a lot of theater. My my parents had, um, you know, always had tickets to the symphony and, you know, um, and uh, my father, my brother sang in the Atlanta Boys Choir, which is second only to the Vienna Boys Choir worldwide. And so my, and my father was uh, head of that, of the board of keeping that going. So we were very involved in culture and in the arts, uh, traveled all over the world a lot as a kid. Uh, and then I was a competitive ice skater from the age of about nine. So that was very, very intrinsic in my developing a sense of creativity, of needing to express myself, you know, creatively, physically. It was extremely um, 
instrumental in teaching me that you have to fall down a lot <laughs> before uh. you land that triple jump. Um, <laughs> and these things, I think, shape me a lot. I, also, I'm one of four, and all three of my siblings are remarkable people. And so you had to try really hard to stand out in my family. You know, my sister danced ballet. My other sister sang opera. My brother, who is older, and um, is he produced Mad Men. He's a producer, a writer. Uh, produced Mad Men, produced Magic City. So everybody's, you know, wow. it, it, it definitely, definitely influenced who I am, all of us. Yeah. yeah. Down, it sounds like it. Now, did that, did that lead to your decision to pursue acting, or how did that all come about for you? You know, I had an aunt who was a big model in New York. Uh, she was a remarkable person. She was also a, a head RN of a huge hospital, and then she was head of PR for um, uh, Volvo. She was just an amazing, amazing woman, but she had been a huge model. She worked with Avedon, and she, when I was quite young, took me to a modeling agency, and introduced me, and, and I did a couple of things as a kid, a couple of commercials. And I liked it okay, but I wasn't, you know, overly impressed with the business there in Atlanta. And so then went, you know, went into skating. Um, and it was actually while I was skating that uh, people saw me, because I was skating at the Omni in Atlanta, which is a big, very public, um, sure. uh, open area place. And so I had several people notice me and ask me to do different modeling jobs and different things. And so it all sort of fed one into the other. But I found that with the modeling, there just wasn't the creative expression that I need. Uh, I'm, you know, you can be a really good model. It does take some intelligence to think and to do it well uh, and to contribute to it creatively. Um, but it just wasn't after ice skating. It just didn't have that expression. And so it took me going into acting to find that outlet again. Do you, do you find that since you were a model that uh, the reason that you uh, got out of it also was because it was so much more stringent the modeling yeah well you know the the bottom line is i was never tall enough to do the high fashion work because i had been so athletic i did tons of work for companies like dance skin um catalina sportswear those kind of companies which was great i worked right away but i was never going to be on the cover of vogue it just wasn't that wasn't what i was groomed for i was groomed immediately into a working um you know model and then it's a natural step to go into doing commercials, which I call three-dimensional modeling, because you literally have to hit the pose, do the lines, you've got exactly ten and a half seconds, you know. Uh, and so that was a natural progression for me. But I always, you know, loved acting and I always loved theater, and, and so all of those things sort of organically grew one to the other. I'm kind of, kind of shark-like in the sense that I have to keep moving forward, <laughs> you know. And, and modeling, I mean, let's face it, people don't. It's a perfectly fine career choice for a few years, but it's it doesn't exactly stress your brain, you know. Uh, no. no, so that was a little difficult for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I can I can see from you know what you've done since that that would absolutely be something that would um, pigeonhole you. Or, yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, it's a little bit, and you know, it's short-lived, let's face it. You know, by the time you're in your mid-20s, you really are, you know, there's a reason they use 16-year-olds for the uh, cosmetic ads. They have no pores, 
you know. That's true. <laughs> so, I mean, it, you really do get to the point where I think it's different now. I think there's a bigger, much bigger variety in modeling. There's a much bigger range of ethnicities in modeling. There's a lot more accepted looks and things, which is wonderful. I think that's great. But at that time, it was pretty much, you know, by 25, you were kind of done. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true. Yeah. And, and you see... On the cover, um, who was it? Oh, Christy Brinkley just did a cover again. And she, she looks fabulous, yeah. She looks amazing. Oh, she's just I, remarkable, yeah. She, she just, always, I've never met her, but she seems like such a sweetheart. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely agree with you. Um, okay, so what, what would you say has been the most valuable lesson you have learned that you have carried throughout your career? The most valuable lesson, wow, well, that's, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> show up on time, know your lines, and understand that you are not the most important person there. As, and, and that I apply to acting mostly, you know, writing not so much. It's, a, it's no. a, more of a solitude thing until you get into the stage that I'm in now, which is promoting and working with editors right. and, and pub PR people and that sort of thing. And there really is a big team involved. People don't realize how much work goes into it beyond the writer. Um, but in acting, I would say, you know, it's those three things. Be on time, know your lines, and know that you are a part of the whole. I've, too many people have ruined their careers and ruined sets by thinking, I'm the actor, I'm more important than everyone else. It just isn't the case. I always tell people if you don't think the people who do the lighting are or who do the filming or who record the sound are important, then go make a movie by yourself in the dark, you know. <laughs> that's, you know, but that's so amazing because I, I ask this question because I always want to know mm-hmm. what you have what do you learned in, in your in your journey? And sometimes people have been in the beginning of their journey and they already know like what was what was it that, that really like I've learned that absolutely will stay with me for my entire career. Right. And well, you know, you, you learn so many things on so many different levels. And the people that I've worked with who I admire the most are the ones who take this business as what it is. It's a business. You know, um, and and you are a part of that business. And if people, especially people who you know see you or think of you as being famous, or people who are in the business to be famous, or worse than that, yet the reality fame people who you know are famous for what we don't know. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> but but the people that I love and respect, the Michael Caines and the David Leans and uh, the people, they are professional people who are kind people, who are decent on the set, and who work hard. Every, they give it 100% every time. And that, I think, it, no matter what you do in life, if you're giving it 100%, then you can go home and, be, and sleep well that night. Absolutely. And, and you are the first person that has said, you know, don't think that you're more important than somebody else on the set. You're the first person that has said that. And oh, my God. People, are, I, people don't even understand. Even the people who do things like craft services, and those are the people yes. who provide snacks. and But their role is crucial, it, not only in feeding people, but in um, morale of the crew. To, to have somebody there for you in the morning saying, hi, you know, I can see you didn't sleep that well. You didn't have enough turnaround time since we shot last night. Can, let me bring you a coffee and some fruit, some protein, you know. Those things are huge. That makes Absolutely. a difference to the whole day, to everyone. Absolutely. Yeah. Every portion has a place, and everybody has their place, and it all goes into the and, whole of the And they deserve production. to be respected for that, yes, Absolutely. and they are as important as you. Yeah. You are not alone. <laughs> no. 
No, not by any means, but some people want to think that. Oh, well, they've convinced themselves of that, haven't they now? (laughs) And, and, you know, there there are lots of cases, too, where uh, this business does that to people, especially people who start in it young. Uh, It's very, very confusing. It's very difficult to understand who who likes you and knows you. Everyone's telling you yes. No one's telling you can't do something or say something. It's a confusing place to find your self-worth in. Oh, I I can't even imagine. I, I can't either. For these youngsters, it must just be so difficult. Yeah, I, I would think so because the, the industry has changed so much. Oh gosh, yes. Since we were we were young. Um, you have been in so many television shows: Dallas Sisters, Life Goes On, Babylon Five, just to name a few, mm-hmm. and films such as On Deadly Ground with the mm-hmm. amazing Michael Caine. Oh, he's so um, great to work. Speaking of, yeah, he's like one of the best. Yeah, like such I, a pro. On the set all the time, never missed a word of dialogue. I mean, right there chatting with everybody, none, none of that hanging out in the trailer. And so funny because people don't realize Michael Caine is Cockney. He's, he's a fishmonger's right. uh, son. And he's not, he has a, another persona that he uses for interviews and things, which is sort of in between. But he is hysterical, swears like a sailor all the time. Funny, funny, funny. Just loved him. And I can I can only imagine what kind of what kind of mayhem you got into with Leslie Nielsen. Oh, on he the, was hysterical too. Yeah. The director at one point told me to do this scene. <laughs> it was actually interesting because I shot for about a week on that movie, and there was a whole long terrorist scene, and which is, goes on with me. And finally, Leslie Nielsen like accidentally opens the emergency door, and the terrorist gets sucked out. But right before the movie, when they were editing the movie, there was an actual terrorist thing, so they cut that scene. So I got cut down to a couple of lines. But the director said to me, uh, just get a glazed look on your face. And Leslie Nielsen turned to me and said, you remember that acting class where you had to be a donut? And I was like, a donut? He goes, glazed, you know, glazed. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> so his sense of humor is exactly like that. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, I mean, you've worked with some, with some greats, and, and not to mention the legend Anthony Quinn. Oh, he was I mean, fantastic. So such a wonderful actor, yeah. What, uh, he seems very... Um, Kind of uh, quiet, but like powerful. Obviously, um, was it like that on set, or was he? You know, Mike. Uh, he was a totally different. Anthony was very, very different. He's a bit of a scene stealer. Uh, he really likes mm-hmm. the camera on him, you know. Uh, and he will rearrange. So the director was not particularly strong. And and when a director starts letting the actor run things, he oh, yeah. have some problems with the film. Uh, it wasn't. He was not. A, I don't mean he was. Um, uh, he, he was very nice and he was very professional, but the director just wasn't strong. So he would continually reset the shots so that the camera was on him all the time and things. And he also ad-libbed a lot, which is a bit of a challenge, you know, when you're working across from someone because you're never sure what they're going to say next. But he put so much passion into everything that it was just a delight to work with him. And he's also he was playing basically Picasso the, was the idea. He was this older, you know, artist, modern artist. <clears throat> and he is actually a painter. Anthony actually was a painter and quite a wonderful one, oh. which I did not realize until we made that movie. Yeah. Now, when they – okay, now that you brought up ad-libbing, how do you, how do you work with that when – I mean, because I know that in general you have a script and there's a cue line usually mm-hmm. or something around that, but if they ad-lib and they're too far out there – 
How do well, you know it depends on it depends on the medium. You really cannot do it on something like a soap or a sitcom where <clears throat> it is like there's not much editing done. Therefore, the show is timed very precisely. I mean, you you start out with rehearsals. <clears throat> the first thing you do is sit down and have a table read, and someone sits with a stopwatch and times the entire thing. So it's very tight. <clears throat> and if they edit, they edit out a half a second here and there. So there's very little ad libbing. I did do one show that was wonderful with Matt Frewer. Do you know who Matt Frewer is? He did uh, Max Headroom and a bunch yeah. of other things. And the show was called Shaky Ground. And I guest starred on it. And he had in his contract that after the producers and the writers got the show they wanted, we taped it, he got a pass where he got to say or do anything he wanted. And it was hysterical. And he planned it in such a way that we could still all do our lines. You know, he didn't throw us off too much, but oh. it was just absolutely hysterical. The, the writers and producers weren't very fond of it because it was until, you know, they thought their stuff was better, of course. So, <laughs> but that was a blast. But if you take something like, I've been on lots of TV shows, and generally what I do is I always give people the lines that they've as written because that's my job as an actor. I didn't write it. It's not my say. But I will occasionally ad-lib something, say, at the end of the scene once I know they have their cut point. Um, if I want to add a funny, especially if it's a comedy, I might do that, add something. Um, and, and sometimes, because that way they can either cut it or not. Right. Uh, working with actors who don't know their lines and who change it every time is just not a good experience. It's yeah. very, very difficult to do, you know. Um, and it's also very dangerous. If you're on a set, especially for a comedy, people, if you are playing to the crew, then you're not playing the film because what happens is when you're reshooting a scene or, or doing several takes, um, you start doing new lines to make the crew laugh, to make it funny. And it seems funny on the set, but when you try to piece it together later, you don't have oh, the build-up to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. They had a big problem with Robin Williams' early films because of that because he was such a brilliant improver, but it didn't work in the film, you know. Right. So he kind of had to be reined back. Got it. Oh, yeah. very interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about your foray into daytime, The Young and the Restless. Yes. You were, <laughs> you were the third actress. Well, actually, um, let, let me tell you the story because I was going to be okay. the second actress. They actually really? hired me when uh, Eileen left the first time. They offered me the role. And at that time, I just wasn't really ready to do a soap. I was doing other film, and I really wanted to do comedy. Right. And, and so I, I passed on it at that time. Uh, and then, ironically, right shortly after that, Bilbo offered me the role of Caroline on, on Bold and Beautiful when Joanna Johnson was leaving. Right. And then Joanna decided to stay so, um, for another year or so. So then seven years later, when it came up again, the Ashley part came up again, when Brenda left, they called me and asked me. So that's when I ended up doing it because I wanted to have another baby. <laughs> oh. So you name another job you can do where they'll just shoot yes. around the baby, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, it was great. So it was really perfect for that. Now, what, what do you say was the biggest challenge of stepping into a role that two other actors have, have had? The only challenge is getting people is doing it your own way. You know, you can, I can play a character, but I cannot play another actress. Right. Do you understand? I mean, everyone brings yes. something intrinsic. And the most difficult thing was I don't think they really wrote for me um, 
I think, you know, some of the storylines were great and all that, but there's just no way that I could play Eileen. I couldn't, you know, and I honestly, I was never one of, I had never really watched the show much because I'm really not a, I'm not a daytime show person. Um, So I tried to watch a few, you know, before I went on. I kind of got the general idea. But, you know, you play something as an actor. So I think the hardest, the only hard thing is getting people to accept this new face in this role and accept that you're going to do, play it a little bit differently, you know. Right. Uh, and, of course, there are people who are just, they love those other people that play the role and you're never going to replace sure. them, and that's fine. But the other girls didn't want the part. Then. <laughs> it's not right. my fault. Right. <laughs> you know. Um, but, it, you know, other than that, I honestly thought the soap opera was probably the easiest job I ever did. What do you I mean, you've find? Got, there's no locations. You're smooth floors. There's climate control. You got secretaries. You know, it's yeah. very comfortable compared to shooting a film. You know, on location in Wyoming. <laughs> oh my goodness, I can't even imagine. Yeah. Um, do you do you find that with a recast that uh, it's too much like the writers either don't get who you are as an actress to play this part or do you find that they want it played a certain way and well they want it played a certain way and that's their prerogative you know um but it, the in this case the actor certainly knew my work i mean it even been to see me in theater you know the producers had come to see me you know do plays and things so right. i don't think there was any question that uh, about the acting level um but i i think that they do tend to pigeonhole the character uh, and this is true of, of all the characters, you know, um, and, and a lot of times they expect a certain type of reaction. And, and the only way I kept asking Bill Bell, what is she like? He kept saying, she's a Midwestern girl. Uh, you know, I was like, okay, and that means, uh, you know, what? Because <laughs> that Midwestern girl doesn't really translate emotionally, I don't think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think what he meant is nice, you know, a nice person. And finally someone said to me, he wants Laura Lee, his daughter. And I was like, oh, 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 okay, I get it. Super nice, classy, you know. Oh, gotcha. uh, I get it. You know, good friend to everybody, good sister, good, you know. Um, but then when, you know, they give you storylines where she's supposed to run a corporation and be a chemist. Oh. And, I mean, there are certain times it's just really hard to play dumb or oblivious or whatever. But, right. yeah, you know, it's your job as an actor to fulfill the role. Now, let's remember there's a director and producer on set who are telling you how to play it as well. Yeah, so it's not true. just up to the actor, you know. Right. Yeah, people right. sometimes forget that. <laughs> Once again, you're not on your own out there. <laughs> right. And, and that's, I think, what um, audiences uh, forget. Uh, being in the business myself and um, – you know, I look at things a lot differently than other people because I, I see the big picture. Because you've been there. You've done it. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And But people don't see beyond uh, their own TV show and, well, this person just doesn't act like that person. Well, yeah. you know, that person is not your original actress either. So you're going to – there's going to be a difference. And – yeah, and the nature of soaps, though, is, I mean, I realized at one point, I think Ashley had had four husbands, three of which had died violent deaths, you know, <laughs> something. And, and as someone who'd actually been through that would not act, it would be a very no. different situation going into a new relationship, but you can't play that. They, right. And soaps, they have a tendency to just drop that other storyline, that history. And I'm more... Uh, 
as an actress, I've trained myself to develop a history for the character, and each thing emotionally feeds into the next thing, but you can't do that. (laughs) You just have to play what they wrote for today, no matter what last week was about. Yes. Yes, because that's that's what acting is, though. I mean, exactly, it's your you job to fulfill the role. To, well, the way that I like to put it best, and this is a theater thing, but you have to serve the piece. That's your job as an actor. It's not about you. It's about the piece. It's about the writing. It's about what the story is mm-hmm. that the director, that the writers, that the creators are trying to get across. Serve the piece. It's the same for Shakespeare as it is for Young and the Restless as it is for uh, Frasier. You know, on and on. Yeah, that's your job. Right. Absolutely. I think there's a lot of people that have forgotten that. But um, <laughs> Yes, as the years go by, that, yeah. that definition starts to like, uh, get wavy there. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk about your play. I mean, you know, In Progress got rave reviews and daily variety, which is, I mean, that's... Doesn't that's happen like, very often. I know. It's no, lovely. that is amazing. You well, are not only the, the writer, uh-huh. but you also directed it. So how did that all come about where you became the writer and the director and, oh, my goodness. No, I didn't direct it. Michael, T. Weiss, it? Michael T. Weiss directed the play. Okay. So yeah, I wrote it, it and then I acted in it. Originally, I was going to possibly direct and hire someone else to play that role. But it was oh. just one of those situations where we couldn't find somebody to play that role the way that I wanted the comedy. And then Michael came in to audition for a part and said, you know, I'd rather direct this. And so we're like, sweet, you know, change roles. So, um, and he did a wonderful job. The one thing that was interesting is um, in, in the uh, play, one of the main characters is loneliness. And loneliness is a different character to each person. Loneliness is that person. And I wrote her as an uh, overweight woman in pajamas, footsie pajamas, who just won't leave your apartment. You know, <laughs> She's yeah. like, let's see what's on late night TV. And Michael, <laughs> being a man, uh, changed it. He cast a man in the role wearing like a white dinner jacket and doing sort of a very Humphrey Bogart kind of thing. Uh, and ironically, I, the one criticism that I did get was that like one critic said, oh, you know, it's played against Sam. She wrote, you know, this. I said, no, I wrote the, it is an old, you know, woman. <laughs> the right. director chose that part. So it's interesting. You never really know what's going on behind it. I mean, I have directed a lot of theater, but I did not direct that one. It's very difficult to direct yourself in theater. I would think so. Yeah, because you you have, you know, if you're doing film or television, there's playback. And you can look at it and see, did that work or not? But in theater, it's hard because you really have to be back in the audience watching the stage to be able to direct it. And you can't get that perspective when you're on stage. So the only real way to do it was as an understudy stand-in for the blocking and all. But, you know, then you don't have the rehearsal process. So... It, it is difficult. People do it. My husband did it all the time, but, uh, you know, he's had a theater company for 25 years, so it's something he was especially good at. <laughs> right, right, right. Wow. That's... Yeah, it's quite a, quite a job there. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. Now, you also wrote novels. Yes, your first I write. Novel, I'm sorry, say that again? It says your first novel, Loaded. My like, first novel was loaded, right? And, and it was selected by Publishers Weekly as the one of the best of 2003. Right. They picked it as one of the best mysteries. Yeah, uh, yeah. Did, you, did you know that this was all going to happen for you? I mean, did you at any point think, I'm going to write a novel, 
and I'm going to get, you know, people are going to accept it, and it is going to go, be out of this world. No, but I did know when I was about five that I was going to grow up to be a princess, and um, <laughs> I was going to wear a very big pink dress and a crown, and I was going to come out onto the stage and everyone would clap. So I knew that was going to happen. You know, I had that going for me right off. Of course, as time went on, I realized royalty as a career option was iffy, you know. (laughs) But I did always love to write, and I did always hope to write something that other people would enjoy. One of the best pieces of advice I ever got as a writer was, write what you would want to read. Don't write like you think you're someone else. Find your own voice and write what would you like to read. And right. uh, and and I loaded I think was a good example of that for me. It's a suspense mystery with a romantic entanglement, but it's it's witty. You know, it has funny parts and release, and then a good hopefully storyline where you want to find out what's going to happen. And that's one of the things I really like to read. So and I did four of those books. Those was the Callaway Wild books. And then I also did the Greer Sand series, which is a psychic series, which is a little more, I consider it a little more grown up, but um, it's more of a psychic mystery kind of series. And now the new one is something complete, and now for something completely different. <laughs> okay, let's, let's, that's perfect segue. Let's uh-huh. talk about Invisible Ellen, which will be released on May 29th. Actually, they moved it up. It's mm-hmm. yeah, May 29th, before you said June 3rd, that's right. They did move no, it up to May 29th. You got right, it. Right, 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 right. You know, I need to um, listen more. <laughs> oh, you're fine. <laughs> I was struck by the words you used on your dedication page. That just, um, it, it struck me in a way of just how empowering these words were. You said, this book is for anyone who has ever felt they didn't count. You do. Your spirit shines as strong and as pure as any other. Isn't it true? Hasn't it broken your heart to see people dismissed because they weren't attractive or they weren't hip or popular? It has always broken my heart to see that. And it's something I learned a long time ago is everybody knows something you don't know. And to discount them and not value them, no matter what, is wrong. Now, there are people we don't want in our lives. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> but that's once you get to know them, you know? Right. But what, what, what brought on, what was the inspiration behind these words? Because when I read it, that was, that was before I even, I even saw anything else. Um, and I, I don't know about the inspiration for those words. I think so much, uh, it's more that the book itself is about these people that society doesn't see. But, that are have so much to offer, just just like everyone does. It, with the right friends, with the right influence, every single person in the world has something to offer. And we lose so much as a society when we discount people because they're not beautiful or young or sexy. And, and the United States is the worst for that, by the way. Other oh, countries yeah. value older people and, you know, <laughs> other things much more. We're, we're in this cult- culture here that's, uh, I call it the anorexic fetuses. You know, everybody has to be 16 years old and skinny, and, and I just don't believe in it. I never have. No. Uh, and even from the time that I was a kid in school, there would always be that one kid that everybody made fun of or whatever, and I was always the one who spoke up for them and got myself in all kind of fucking trouble, you know. Sorry. Whoops, sorry. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> and um, and so, but it's just something that always touched my heart. People who were discounted, you know, and I hated that. So um, the idea for Ellen came from several different things, but one of them was an acting exercise where I had to go out in the world and be someone I wasn't. And so I borrowed a fat suit and put zits on my face and made my hair all greasy. And I went out to the mall and spent some time. And after a while, just forgot, you know. And I turned and asked this guy the time, and he looked at me and just jumped, started, like, ugh, ugly, awful, and, like, hurried away. And I thought, I get it. He doesn't want to see me. He doesn't want to have to look, you know. And right. for someone who he didn't realize, you know, was doing all the lingerie ads for the, you know, right at that time was when I was first in L.A., you know, he didn't know he was talking to. And I'm not saying that that made me any more important, but had he known that and seen that, he would have treated me totally differently. Exactly. Do you know what I'm saying? Um, and so that was one thing. That was a long time ago, but that, that experience stayed with me. And another thing is that I had a best friend growing up uh, when I was skating and all, and her father had been in World War II. He was a gunner, and their plane had been shot down. And he had been so badly burned that they left him. His buddies left him. And it was three days before they got back to him and found him. Um, and so when I knew this man, he, he had no face. You, you know the kind of person who's been burned so badly. But he was the kindest, most wonderful man. And he really did make people see him for him. I mean, some people couldn't deal with it. But it was just a great lesson for me, you know, that uh, people are who they are inside. And one more thing, and I want, because this is important, I think, is I, I work with a charity, the Desi Geesman Foundation, and we work with kids at City of Hope who have cancer. Yes. And so many of them have either lost limbs, and all of them go through a stage where they lose their cuteness. They lose their hair, their faces get swollen, they get black hair from the hormones on their face. And, you know, on top of everything else they're going through, they lose their innate cuteness, their kidness, you know. And they're still the same kids, and they're wonderful, and they're brave, and they're they're inspirations for all of us and such a sense of perspective it gives my life um so i think all of those are three examples of of why things that help shape me to think the way that i think um and and all of them contributed and just you know everyday life when you see someone treating a waitress badly or i just always want to say you're not more important than them that makes sense i hope so it it absolutely does now is that is that the one thing you would like readers to get from reading Invisible Ellen? Or is there something, is there I something think, more Yeah, I think if there's one thing I wanted readers to get from it, it's that look deeper. It's that person that you discount, that old guy sitting at the bar, may have saved lives in a war, may right. have had experiences you know nothing about. You know, right. you just don't know. You cannot judge people. It's stop judging is really, you know the lesson there and value something that actual has actual worth, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Cause don't you feel like we've gotten to the point where we're valuing these things now that just aren't, you're not taking them with you guys, you know? No. And no. Um, yeah, all your, all your, your big house and your, whatever your Porsche and your, and your good looks, you're going to get old and you know, the house means nothing. It's what goes on in that house. It's the people you make smile. It's the human connection you make every day. That's what's important. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And it, it is uh it is too bad that, that we have gotten to I think that uh since nine eleven happened mm. um I think that we have returned back to where we were before, which is not a good thing. Yeah. Because I, I don't think that I think that after nine eleven happened I think that people were a little more 
uh, not as involved in themselves anymore. Yeah, yeah, and that's a hard thing to define. I think I know what you're trying to say, and it's hard to put words to. Um, yeah. yeah, 9-11 definitely affected everyone in this country. Uh, uh, we just got a new cat today, and he's standing at the door wanting to attack the dog. Uh, sorry, he's very cute. We just went to the Humane Society. Um, so, uh, but no, I completely agree with you. But and I think I think it's going both ways. You know, I, I think that there's first of all there's a pendulum, and there's always also the extremes. And Absolutely. you see these egos, and um, whether it's religious fanatics or uh, you know uh, political fanatic, whatever it is, fanaticism, uh, extremism, fear mongering, all that stuff, that people hold on tighter and tighter and tighter as it's dying. Does that yes. make sense, you know? Yes. Uh, and, and I think that we're, it, we're getting there, but there's these factions that are still clinging so tightly, and they may come into power again. There may be more discrimination. There may be more intolerance. But it is going to die eventually. It has to, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, just like if we don't start caring for our planet, we ain't going to have one. That's <laughs> you know, true. once again, we have to realize we're a part of this. We're not the only thing. We're a part of the whole. And, and that's a really good feeling, by the way. Absolutely. Realizing that you're not the most important thing in the universe is a really good feeling. <laughs> Take well, the pressure think, off. Well, I think that if you think that you're the only thing in the universe and you don't have something uh, above you or mm-hmm. that you look to, right. whatever it is, God, Bigger than you, um, right. yeah, universe, whatever it is. I totally agree. I think I think you're lost. I think that people that don't have that, I think they're lost. I think that they don't have a real Because that's grasp. the only thing that's really real. I mean, this and, uh, and then we're getting metaphysical now, but uh, yes, scientists are. are proving now that there are these wavelengths. There are thoughts have weight. They have mass. Uh, people are these connections are very real, and when you're separated from them, your soul gets isolated. I mean, I'm, I'm expanding on that. The scientists didn't say that, but it's really, really fascinating. The science that's coming out now. Yes. Um, yeah, and the connections. It's it's actually remarkable, and I think we're on the right track. It's just going to be hard for those people that have hung in there for so long. And, and let's remember, people are basically brainwashed from birth. They're yes. brainwashed from birth by whatever it is. If you're raised a Muslim, you're told that's the way life is, and that's all there is. Christians, okay. same thing. Um, and and things, the things like the Internet and the fact that people are traveling more, all those things are helping. They're opening things up. You know, the world's been dominated by primarily men for a really long time. (laughs) Right, And back, you know, for women, I mean, sort of our golden years was the Druids and all that sort of thing, when when the male and the female were equal. They were both considered very important and very equal. And there's been an unbalance, you know, for a long, long time. You know, and it's starting to right itself. But it's not going to happen smoothly. (laughs) Oh, no, no, because you've had had years and centuries of this. Right, of course. And history teaches us that there's something between, you know, indentured servitude and friendship. You know, (laughs) there's going to be some rebellion in there. Yes. And some anger, right. Absolutely. Well, let's get to your new film, Scream at the Devil. I've Ah! I've seen pictures, and it looks... um, I'm not a scary, scary movie person, yeah. but I will definitely watch this because you're in it. Oh, well, thank you. Well, I'm not a scary movie person either, even though I've done several. They're fun to do. Um, but yeah, the I mean, interesting thing about this movie is it's not, it's not a horror movie per se. It does have some scary things in it because, you know, people like that. It's fun. But right. it's really based on a real 
psychological journey of a woman who has a history of schizophrenia. And now here's an interesting fact, and I've said this on a show before. Uh, the, when people get to the point of schizophrenia where they're delusional, where they're actually seeing hallucinations, images, the yeah. number one thing they see in this country, which is very Christian-centric, is Jesus Christ. That's the number one person really? who appears to schizophrenics. Number two is the devil, Satan. Isn't that fascinating? That is fascinating. Yeah, and then, of course, people go through all these the demon things. Um, you know, it's whatever demons that's in their head. Uh, and it's a really, I did so much research on this, and I have so much compassion now for the people who go through this. It must just be terrifying to yeah. not be able to control your thoughts, to see and hear things that aren't really there. It just right. is so, so difficult. And when they're, they're just beginning to understand it. It's so complex. Um, and so it's, this is really the story of a woman who's going through this, and you don't know if it's real or not. Is it real if she sees it? You know, is it real if it affects her? I mean, you look at something like a hysterical pregnancy. Women, even animals, can actually convince themselves they're pregnant. Their stomach grows, the whole thing. And this is real, you know? So, right. so the whole thing is back and forth. Is she really seeing it? Is it really happening? And, and I'm not going to tell you what it is. So, well, but so okay, that's so. the point of it. It's not just a straight horror movie like, you know, the, the devil's out to get her. That's not the point of the movie. No, it's, uh, I, I would think that you must have – what I was going to ask you is what kinds of challenges did you face as the executive producer as well as the actor in it? Oh, right. my goodness. Uh, well, as the executive producer, basically, you're helping um, oversee the entire thing. Now, because my okay. husband directed it, he honestly did most of the production work, not me, uh, because it was just too much for me to act 12 hours a day on that emotional level and hire the crew and, you know, um, write people's checks. Although I did do a bunch of that stuff, too, but, you know, because they're just constantly coming to you. We need this. We need that. The tow truck's late, da, 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 whatever. Right. So, yeah. The biggest challenge was really keeping my energy, you know, for the entire um, – to get through the whole shoot and have enough energy for each scene and to stay on it. Because in this particular case, because I was also producing, I had to jump in and out of that role. So it was literally oh, I would go from talking to the makeup artist and the, the costume designer about what we needed to do for the next scene to we need you on set and now I need to lose my mind. Um, so I had to do all of that emotional homework before I had to really be ready to get it done first. And that helped a lot. At one point I was doing a scene where I literally lose it uh, have a big fight with my husband Eric Atabari and the, the, um, one of the other producers who are our special effects uh, genius came to me and said do you have you know, a black sweatshirt and a this and a that and we need to use this and I said probably but not right now <laughs> this is literally like 20 seconds before I had to shoot this scene. <laughs> so sometimes he's like, oh, oh, sorry, you know, because there's, there's only, you know, you need a few seconds there to jump in and out. What, what, what do you draw on to in, in order to bring a schizophrenic to life? I mean, I know research, but where do you get it from, Well, sharing? I watched a lot of um, uh, videos of real people with schizophrenia. I did okay. a lot of the medical research on it to see what actually causes it. So in other words, what's happening in their brain, you know. Uh, but one of my best resources was a book called The Center Will Not Hold. Uh, what was her name? Ellen, I uh, can't remember her last name right now. Brilliant book. This is a woman who has double doctorates. 
in English and psychology, and she also has a law degree. And while she was going to Oxford, she, schizophrenia started happening to her. And this is her personal account of the whole thing. And it's so succinct, so beautifully written, so in her brain. I knew exactly, you know, what she was going through, what she was fighting, right. the demons, how they, how they spoke to her and how she had to react to them. It was the most fantastic resource for me. Um, and I have also have uh, friends, and I went to visit a friend who has a schizophrenic brother, that kind of thing. So, you know, you do your research like that, but that's just observing. So that particular piece, Ellen Sands, I think is her name, but it was so great because it gave me this really intelligent, analyzed look inside what really happened. And that resource was just amazing. The Center Will Not Hold, brilliant book. Oh, wow. Yeah. Can you imagine having three doctorates? I mean, and having schizophrenia, this woman is remarkable. (laughs) Uh, Unbelievable. But yeah, yeah, and and we think we're doing something cool, right? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But for you to jump in and out of, especially with that, I'm sure that level of emotion that you had to reach was... Yeah, I'll I'll tell you, you know, that's something, as an actor... um, there is a certain part of you that even when you're playing the most difficult rage or insanity or sorrow, there should be some, you should always be in control, absolutely be in control. When actors lose it and they do that method thing, they're not acting. It's not, I have very little respect for that. There should be some small part of you going, yeah, this is fun. You know what I mean? I got it. This feels really cool. Um, and theater is really great for teaching you how to jump in and out of stuff because you have to do that every night at the same time, at the same point, you know, right. uh, and repetitively. On a film, you generally play a scene, you know, that day you do it and you're done with it and you move on. But in theater, you have to keep producing that emotion over and over again. Um, and so that's the best training there is. There's just no question. Wow. What, uh, what is next for you, Miss Sherry? Well, I just finished writing a first draft of the sequel to Invisible Ellen called Emerging Ellen. And um, that, uh, so I have, to, I have to rewrite and all that. You know, I just got the notes back from the editor, so I've got to jump back into that one. So that's going to take up time for a while, and then there will be a bunch of promotion for this book coming out. So right. I've got, you know, meetings and interviews and that sort of thing, which is fun. And then, and then back to the real world when I get to work <laughs> in my pajamas again. You know, yeah, so. that that must be the that's the uh, silver lining in the writer's thing, right? Exactly, silver lining. It's fantastic. <laughs> Throw something in the crock pot, get your kitties on your lap, and get to work. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to thank you, Sherry. This has been absolutely fascinating. Um, Thank you so much for taking the time. Of course, that was delight for me. You're such a charming person. Thank you so much for having me on. Thank you, sweetie. And um, again, the the name of the book is Invisible Ellen. It will be released on May 29th. And you're going to have a lunch party in Pasadena. That's right, at Vroman's, my favorite bookstore. Uh, That's going to be on June 5th at 7 o'clock. And I'll post that up on, on Facebook and my site and all that. And when, yeah, and it's available for pre-sales now, by the way. Someone just told me they bought it, and I was like, oh, I didn't even know. <laughs> yeah, on Amazon, it's, it's available for pre-sale. Right, oh, and yeah. for your German listeners, it's being released in Germany as well. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Germany, so Germany, go out and buy it as well? That's right. It's called Days of Salt and Sugar in Germany, which apparently doesn't translate as well here, but... Oh, interesting. Yeah, I know. That's very interesting. interesting. Uh, um but thanks again. Uh, would you course. hold on the line uh, while I uh, end the show? Okay. 
Uh, thank you, everyone, for joining us. Um, have a great evening. This is Deb out.